And we're back with episode of the MDM Podcast. Joe Morales here with you on this very busy Tuesday evening. There's a lot to get into today. The Jets are looking for an offensive coordinator and the quarterback. The Nets are still playing well without Kevin Durant. The Knicks survive a game against the Cleveland Cavaliers tonight. And a very fun guest, Dave Popkin, is back with us as the Seton Hall Pirates have hit the midway point in conference play. He'll sit with us and, and break down everything at a college basketball level with Seton Hall. But first, we will put a bow on the 2022 Giants season that came to an end on Saturday evening with a 38-7 loss in Philadelphia. In a game where the Giants, it's called like it is, showed up ill-prepared. They were clearly outplayed by the better Philadelphia Eagles team. And the Giants' lack of talent was very prevalent in this game. And... It was very unexpected. I was talking with some buddies before the game who were saying we all agreed the Giants would put up a fight in this game. They may not win because they're clearly not the better team. We knew that going in. Philadelphia won 14 games this year. Philadelphia is much more set for success than the Giants are. But we still expected Brian Dable and his coaching staff to come up with a game plan to keep the Giants competitive in this game and maybe, dare I say, win it. But that is not weak. That is not what we got. The Giants went down to Philadelphia with no fight and no heart, got pounced in the divisional round, and the season comes to a close. And it's one of the weirder things I've experienced because in a normal year, if one of my teams gets blown out in a playoff game like that, you're angry, you're upset. But just what's been happening with a what's been happening with the Giants all year that started in Tennessee with that win on the missed field goal by Reggie Bullock. A win against Chicago, the Green Bay win. All of these wins, the Baltimore win. It's been a fun year. This has not been a regular giant season like we've seen in the last five years and like we've been covering here the last three. The Giants have clearly turned themselves around. And there I say, they were a joy to watch this year. I haven't been able to say that a lot in my Giants fandom. This team brought me a lot of... It was a lot of fun. That's what it was. It was a lot of fun. And it's sad to put a bow on this, but the Giants were not the most talented team in this playoff. We knew that. Look at their receivers. Some of these guys wouldn't be on other teams' practice squads. Richie James, Colin Johnson, Kenny Galladay is atrocious. But Brian Dable completely revamped Daniel Jones, and Daniel Jones was able to make these receivers look competent. It was a crazy year, and a ridiculously good job by this coaching staff turned around like that. In one year, normally things like this take years. Look what happened in Jacksonville. Back-to-back first overall picks. Now, they made the playoffs this year, but that was a long way coming. And for all the bad we'd have with the Giants, to have it turn around with a snap of a finger in one year, you can't be picky. And I want to be, a, and I was upset. I was, I was, I was more, I was more disappointed when the Giants got blown out on Saturday night. But when you put it in perspective, like I said, it started with that missed field goal in Tennessee. It started with that. All the comeback wins. The close games, I'm always going to remember that Sunday night game in Washington where the Giants all about clinch a playoff spot. The Green Bay game in London. I said it before, that Baltimore game. 
The Giants were special this year, and they were a lot of fun. So it doesn't hurt as much if they were blown out in that playoff game. You know, next year, if they come back stronger than ever and they're a legitimate threat in the NFC because they weren't this year, and we know that. Next year, they can they can legitimately make some noise in the NFC as long as they make the right decisions for agency. And that's what we will do today. We will have a lot of time on this show to preview the giant offseason, what they do in the draft, as free agency approaches. There's going to be a lot of time to talk specifics. But, you know, as we put a bow on it today, we'll just go over some of the things the Giants can do this offseason. Priority number one, bringing Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley back. Now, in the postseason, and I, by postseason I mean season-ending press conference, Joe Shane and Brian Dable, you know, agree, they seem to agree that Daniel Jones should be back. And if they didn't, there'd be an issue. But um, it's glad to see that they agree that it's time to be back. Um, in addition to that, Saquon Barkley. And it's been reported that Barkley's turned down $12 million a year for, I believe, it was four years. So that's going to be an issue in itself, trying to get him back. But those are going to be priorities one and two. Look what Brian Dable has been able to do with Daniel Jones, the way he limited his turnovers. Now, we knew Daniel Jones can use his legs, but we've never seen him use his legs like this year. We've never seen that. Brian Dable turned that around for him, too. And like I said before, Daniel Jones made some of these practice squad receivers look like legitimate NFL receivers. All of this while trying to prove to the front office that he can be a a top-tier quarterback in the NFL. And he proved it this year, and he should be paid like it too. The Giants should not get cheap with this. They should not try and shortchange him. Daniel Jones should be paid like an NFL quarterback because he is one now. This was the year he turned around. So bringing him back on a four-year deal, he's probably going to make more than $30 million. And you know what? I'm perfectly fine with that. You have your quarterback. It's nice to go to bed at night knowing that you have your quarterback in this league. Now, Saquon Barkley's of the story. You always, you know, you tread lightly when you pay running backs. It's sometimes, it doesn't really work out well. You can look at all the running backs that haven't panned out after earning all these big contracts. But I feel like it's different with this Giants team because, as of right now at least, there's no legitimate weapons on offense besides them. And it doesn't look like the Giants are going to go out and pay one in France either. So you have no other choice for the Brooklyn Saquon Barkley. And if that's going to be your weapon, so be it. Pay him, though. You can't cut corners and, and try and replace him. There's no replacing a Saquon Barkley. Look at the role he played this year and in years past, too. Pound for pound, I think he's one, He he's the best running back in the NFL. No question about it. Look what he means to this team. He should be paid like a top-tier running back, and he should be paid because he needs to be here. The Giants need him. Now you look at free agency. Also, the Giants are going to be, at least in my opinion, and then let me just let me lay the groundwork real quick. Free agency for the Giants this year because they have about sixty million in cap, and I'm not going to sit here and, and do logistics because money can move around in the NFL. The cap is very very tricky, but they have about sixty million dollars to work with, and then a bunch more if they free up guys, uh, cut them, and, and restructure contracts. But you can't go into the into the numbers too much because it changes a lot. But 
in free agency, the Giants should be looking to improve their offense. Uh, really, all you need to do is bring back uh, Slayton, Shepard, and bring in a receiver. I've been saying for weeks now, Alan Lazard fits this team perfectly. You do not need a superstar receiver on this team if you have Saquon Barkley. Number one, Daniel Jones does not throw the ball that many times. Number two, his throws are not overly complicated. As long as you have receivers who can catch the ball, the Giants are poised for success. One of the things that held back the Giants this year was Richie James, Colin Johnson, guys like that. And there were plenty of them this year. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm not mentioning all of them, but there were a lot of them. Galladay, like I said before. You can legitimately go into next year with this receiving core. Hopefully Lazard, that's the one guy you bring in. Shepard, Slayton, Hodgins, and Wondell Robinson. That's your five receivers. Now, of course, you bring in depth and training camp and all that, and of course, of injuries. But those are your five receivers, and that is very doable. At least I think so. You do not need to go out and trade a lot of draft capital for an aging DeAndre Hopkins. You do not need to trade a lot of draft capital for a DJ Moore or a T. Higgins or a Lockett or Metcalf if Seattle puts them up. No need to. Another thing they should go out and free agency and do is the interior offensive line. We saw it this, this week. PFF has graded the Giants the 30th best offensive line in the NFL. Not good. Now you have your cornerstone piece of left tackle with Andrew Thomas, who, by the way, you got to extend along with Dexter Lawrence. You have Neil right tackle. You're not giving up on him. It was only one year. Thomas was rough in his year. Look at him now. You got to shore up that interior offensive line because it was not. It wasn't great this year, but you know the Giants were able to get by with it. Daniel Jones didn't really make it an issue, but there's a lot of room for improvement there. Those two things should be addressed in free agency. The other issues can be addressed by the draft. A number two corner is something they need. We saw in the playoffs, especially when he got to the Philly game. This is not the reason they lost. But you had a Dory Jackson on A.J. Brown. When you face these teams that have these two legitimate receivers, you need help. Now, I love Cordell Flop. Played great this year. He's not a number two corner. He's not. So you need to bring in a number two corner, and that's what I would do with the 25th pick in the draft. I don't know. Again, I don't know names. Just draft the best available corner there. And also, second, third round, whatever you want to be. Let's get a linebacker in here, too. Look at that Philly game and watch the Giants all year. Some of these linebackers struggle with tackles. Sometimes the Giants struggled with run defense. The defensive line is not an issue. Edge rusher and nose tackle, God knows, are not issues. But you can bring in some better linebackers here just to shore up that defensive backfield. It's, to me, it's very simple. Now, I, obviously, what the heck do I know? They're not going to do this. But that's obviously something that you can do. And I think it's very possible, too. Now, this is not guaranteed, but you also got to keep in mind that Mike Kafka might be leaving for a head coaching job. If it, if he does, uh, my guess would be Shea Tierney, who's the Giants QB coach, would be elevated to the OC position. Which, you know, the Giants are not this... NFL team as of late that have had these sought-out coordinators. Now you have Wink, too, who's interviewing for jobs. But this is a new thing for Giants fans. They're not used to having the sought-out coordinators. But if you do, you got to be able to have the right guys in the system to move up. This is not something you, you don't bring an outside guy in right now. Brian Dable has established a staff that if one guy leaves for a promotion, 
you promote from within. That's been the giant way forever. And it needs to continue here. So Shea Tierney would most likely be that guy if, if Kafka does leave him for agency. This is a good season for the Giants. There's a lot of hope for the future. And normally when you, or when we, or when talking me and Trevor close up the year for the Giants on, usually it's November, but realistically January 3rd or in the past few years, January 10th with the extra the extra week, leaves a sour taste in your mouth. En- ending the season on January 22nd or 21st it was, is great. Obviously you want a different outcome, but the first year with this core, with a playoff win, there's nothing better. So I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, Dave Popkin from the Pirates Varsity app will join us to talk some Seton Hall hoops on the MDM podcast. We're back from break, and we're now joined by Dave Popkin. He's one and a half of the Seton Hall radio team on the Pirates Varsity app and Sirius XM. He also calls almost every sport in the book. Thanks for joining us. I guess we'll jump right into it. All right, so Dave, this team sits at 5-5 five and five in the Big East right now at the midway point of conference play. And this comes after starting 1-4. and four. Would you say this team is performing how everybody outside of the building thought they would? I think so. Um, I mean, if you asked me before the season, um, you know, would this be a, an 18-win team that, you know, is on the bubble and can finish 500 or maybe a little better in the league? Um, I think a lot of people would have agreed with that. And I think that's kind of where they are. It's, it's a function of the schedule, like what their record is right now. When they had the games that were quote unquote winnable or that they should win, they won them. And the games that, you know, were more difficult, um, they didn't. And this week to get a split against UConn and Marquette, I think it's really the best that you can ask for. The The UConn win was epic. The Marquette thing was a disaster, but it was at the end of the in first half, five and five, having played a lot of games on the road. I mean, they, they went a stretch where they played five out of seven on the road, and some of these were like difficult places like at Xavier, at Creighton, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think they can make a little run and, and finish above 500 in the league, and if they do that, then they've got a chance. No, absolutely. And, I mean, if you ask Shaheen Holloway, that Marquette game did not go as – I mean, obviously didn't go as planned, and he wasn't satisfied with it. And he was asked in the in, in the post game, are you satisfied with 5-5? Five and five? And obviously a coach is going to say no. But people looking on the outside looking in, you look at this team with a new head coach and and you know brand new staff five and five you know you, you you kind of accept at this point am I right? Yeah, and I mean he said that he would have taken seven and three or six and four, and I think they could have easily done that because they had a lead against Providence. They only lost by like three on the road at Xavier. Um, they were, you know, they were in some of these games, and if they don't lose the Siena game. In Orlando, I think you're looking at a very different situation for this team right now because they wouldn't have the quad three loss. Um, they really wouldn't have any blemishes on their resume. Uh, if you look at, you know, what would be a, considered a, a bad loss or, you know, these quality wins, quad one wins, they have, you know, they have some good wins. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I, I still don't know what this team is, Joe. I really don't. I mean, from day to day, You're not sure what you're going to get. You're not sure if they're going to make any shots. This past game against Marquette, they actually made shots. Right. And 
and but they threw the ball away. And twenty six turnovers is just unacceptable. No, you're absolutely right. But and, and before this Marquette game, like you said, there are times where they look like a collective unit, and I thought they were starting to look like a collective unit. They they came back from one and four in conference play. They won five in a row, including that big win, like you said, in UConn. So it's been going right as of late. And when it is going right. What's been the main reason as to why this group has meshed so quickly under this Shaheen Holloway regime? Kadari Richmond playing 35 minutes and taking control of the team. And everybody else sharing the ball, being unselfish, and getting some good shots, and recognizing who has the hot hand. So if Al Dawes comes in and he makes his first one, keep feeding him because he's going to make it. Uh, Even in the Georgetown game, Jameer Harris had his one big game. Once he made the first one, they fed him, and he made two more. So you're a veteran team. Like, you have to recognize these things. If Tyree Samuel, you know, at the beginning of a game, uh, like three games ago, they fed it to him, like, every time, and he kept scoring inside. Do it until the other team stops it. You know what I mean? Like, whatever is going right, stick with it. And I think that they have, when they have played really well, they have stuck with whatever's going right that day. Like, there were a couple games, like the St. John's game stands out, um, and there were a couple others, maybe Butler, where the starting lineup was playing really well. They were building a big lead, and he just left him in. And I'm good with that. Like college basketball, there's enough media timeouts. There's, there's enough rest in between games. If you want to leave him in there the first 11 minutes and have him build a big lead, do it. You know, right. you don't have to play the bench to 11 guys every game or nine or 10 guys every game. So um, I think just playing smart, you know, and, and obviously when they play the ferocious defense like they have in many second halves this year, um, coming out of the locker room, they've played better defense than in the first half as a rule this year. So when they can play defense at that level, you know, it's hard to score against them. If you're going to score less than 30 and a half, um, that's a tough team to beat. No, you're absolutely right. And you look at the UConn game when they um, come out slow in the beginning, they go down 14 at half, and then the defense starts cheering up in the second half. You know, the scene, uh, excuse me, UConn did not have a field goal in the last five minutes of that of that um, game when Seton Hall completed that upset. And you look at who takes over that UConn game. And you're right, it's a, it's a myriad of, of different players. But down the stretch, Casey and Defo was one of the best players in that UConn game. What have you seen from him coming over to Seton Hall? I think it's been an uneven year. I think he's really the heart of the team. And when he plays like that defensively, everybody feeds off of him. And it doesn't have to be a block shot. It can be a deflection. It can be a, a big dunk. You know, he had a couple of big dunks in that game. Um, it can be just him stepping up and making clutch free throws. It could be a, a myriad of things, diving on the floor, just telling guys where to go. Like he's, he's a grad student. He's been to the Elite Eight in the NCAA tournament. He's a tough guy. He's a big key to the team. Now, he hasn't always played well. Um, there are some times where his passing has been bad or, you know, he'll put up two or four points or whatever. But, you know, generally, I think he's been as advertised, right? His defense has been at an elite level and you figured he would struggle a little bit playing up, you know, playing a big East team every night instead of, you know, St. Peter's probably played five power six teams last year total, including the NCAA tournament. 
you know, now you're playing 25 of those games. So, you know, you're playing guys that are bigger than you. You might be playing guys that are faster than you. Uh, but he has the heart to overcome some of that. And I think generally it's been a good year. How do you think Shaheen's handled coming over to, from a mid-major school to Seton Hall? You think he's handled it well? I think it's been an adjustment. Yeah, I mean, his coaching has been good. Um, you know, I think he's feeling pressure, you know, just on himself, like not from anybody else. Just he really wants to win. He's coming back to his home school. Um, he has high expectations. <clears throat> and I think that um, you see it come out. You know, sometimes like after the Marquette game, he was really upset. Mm. And I don't blame him for being really upset. Um, Might have gone over the line, you know, with the way that he handled it. But he, he's honest and he um, doesn't sugarcoat anything. So, you know, we appreciate the access that we get with him. And I know that the writers do as well. And he's going to tell it like he sees it. And he's his own personality. And... That's just, you know, the way that he's going to be. So everybody has to has to get used to that. And he's different than Kevin Willard, even though he worked under Willard for such a long time. And uh, and just see how it plays out. Let's say, David, it's it's honestly, it's a sight watching every game. I know you have a front row view of him. Sometimes you're actually blocked by him because he's yeah. always up and down, uh, up and down the uh, the sidelines. Have you seen a coach so animated as as him before during a game? Yeah, I mean, there are sometimes you'll see him get down almost in a defensive stance. Like he wants to be out there himself, or he'll bang on the table, or he'll, you know, yell at somebody on the bench when it's, you know, it's somebody on the floor's fault. You know, right. like you see all kinds of stuff. He got a technical for jumping up and down the other night. He didn't say anything. Like I was standing, I was sitting right there. He did not say anything to James Breeding, and he got teed up. And he was like, "What did I say?" And Breeding does nothing. We're jumping up. And down. So I had never seen that before. Um, so yeah, he's, he's into it and he, uh, he's just the ultimate competitor. He wants to win. I gotta tell you when I, when I'm, when I'm running stats for you guys, when I see him every once in a while, when he's actually out of the huddle, you know, he does not hold back. He doesn't care who's around. He doesn't care who he's talking to. Uh, Shaheen Holloway is going to say what he wants when he wants. And I got to tell you as a fan of the team, I, I, I appreciate that. It's, 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 it's nice. Yeah, a lot of people seem to like that. There's one move that he does, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but he did it in the Rutgers game. He did it in the UConn game. He's done it in some of the bigger wins where the team will go out and they'll sit in those little chairs out on the court mm-hmm. during a timeout, and he'll hang back at the table for like a minute and think about what he wants to say <laughs> and, and how he wants to proceed. You know, he really he takes time to gather his thoughts and he like almost lets them get their rest, simmer down. He'll go in. He'll give them like twenty seconds of what he wants, and then he's and then he's out. And and I haven't seen a coach do that before, but I think it's smart because instead of just jumping right into the huddle and being all you know animated and um, you know everybody's emotions are running high or whatever, decide what you really want to do and then do it. Right. No, you, you, you're totally right about that, Dave. You're totally right. Um, one of the players I wanted to talk about was, uh, you brought him up before, Kadari Richmond. And, you know, he's finally starting to become that player we thought he'd be when he came over from Syracuse. So, from your vantage point, what have you seen What have you seen him develop in his game or change or tweak to make him into this player that, I mean, I'll tell you right now, Dave, there, there are scouts of these games every day, presumably, watching him. So, like, what has he done to sort of get on the radar of these NBA teams? Well, he's six six, and he can play the point. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that's that's big, and and his defense has improved, 
and his three-point shot has improved markedly. Like last year, he had a hitch in his shot, and it was kind of ugly. And he would make some of them just because he's a natural athlete. But I think they've really smoothed out his shot, and he's shooting about 40% from downtown. And that helps because people have to respect that. Um, I, I think he can get by just about anybody in the league. That's what separates him. And he can get you know, to the line. He can finish some crazy shots around the rim. He's a New York City point guard. And Seton Hall has always had, and when they're good, like a New York City point guard that can do that and that can create. And he doesn't just look for his own shot. Like he will find the open shooter. Uh, I think when he is on his A game, he's the best point guard in the league. Like I, I can't think of anybody top of my head. Like Tyler Kolick, right, from Marquette, mm-hmm. has a lot of assists. Yes. But like against a Seton Hall defense, the two games that he played against Seton Hall, I think he scored a combined 10 points. Mm-hmm. You know, and he might have had, I'd have to look, you know, he probably averaged six or seven assists in those games, but they score a lot of points. So I I think Richmond's better than him. And I think that he's better than most of the point guards in the league when he is aggressive. And, you know, when he gets north to south, downhill, and his handle is great. I mean, it looks like he's half asleep out there, but that's just (laughs) his, like, manner. It's his personality. And... He's he's stayed out of foul trouble for like the last ten or twelve games. Mm-hmm. I think he's really good. No, no doubt about that. That's that's bold to say he's best in the league, Dave. I like it. It's bold. Um, there are only two guys on this team that have shot better than eighty-five percent from the free throw line. As a team, they're shooting sixty-eight percent. And as a team that shoots some of the most free, um, some of the most free throwers in the league, I believe they're top. 30 in the league in, in free throw attempts, but in the mid 200s in, in, in free throws made. Dave, this has been one of their big problems, and it's, it's at times cost them games too. Am I right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you could go back there three or four games at least where, you know, they missed 10 or 12 free throws and games decided by three to five points, and and uh, and it's hurt them. Uh, the Siena game and, and a bunch of other games. I think the Providence game, they missed some free throws second half. Um, and Kadari, you know, gets to the line a lot. So if he could improve his free throw shooting and be like high seventies or in the eighties, that's a game changer, you know, instead of like high sixties, um, that's a couple more makes a game when you're getting to the line eight or 10 times. So, um, yeah, it's across the board. And Shaheen has said they shoot, you know, free throws for 25% of their practice. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like they don't practice it. Um, I don't know if they're tired if they're just not good shooters or if it's a mental thing i have no idea but like the yukon game there were 13 out of 15 in the second half from the line and one of the two misses was on purpose on the last shot of the game Mm -hmm. so that's how you close out a one-point game and they're not good enough to shoot like 60 percent from the line and win games it's just it makes it mathematically impossible because if you're going to you know not shoot a high percentage and shoot a lot of threes and shoot a low percentage at the line. Then you have to two people to death and analytics say that you can't two people to death. Like you're not going to win a lot of games. If you take all twos. You're absolutely right, Dave. And, and uh, as we close it out, let's take a look at the, the conference as a whole real quick. And it's been different 
this year than in years past. Villanova without Jay Wright, they've yet to figure themselves out yet. Creighton has not been what everybody thought they'd be. Do you think it's a weaker conference overall or just more competitive now? I think it's just changed. I think some teams have gotten better and some teams have gotten worse. I mean, Villanova's obviously gotten worse because they don't have Colin Gillespie, who was who was the best point guard in the league the last couple of years and really made them go. And they don't have their best player in Justin Moore. So if they would have had more this year, Villanova would be a top five team that would be going to the tournament. Right now, I think it's very questionable, you know, whether they can go. Cam Whitmore's back and they've had their moments, you know, with him and they have good players, you know, Slater and Dixon are both good players up front, but their guard play has been weak and you need guard play to win in college basketball. So, um, but Xavier's better. Marquette is better. Providence is like as good or maybe a little worse, but they're, they're right there. You know, um, Seton Hall's a little worse maybe, but they're in the mix. Like they could finish in fourth or fifth place and still make the tournament. Um, Creighton is good, you know, so you could get five or six teams in. And for this league, that would be good. Like DePaul is better. Um, so there's a bunch of teams. St. John's is better. So, I mean, nationally, are they like the second, the third, the fourth best conference? I don't know. I don't know. They're probably about the probably about the third best conference right now. But that's pretty good. And, you know, if you get five or six teams in, I think that's that's you know, certainly respectable. So right now I'd say Seton Hall is on the outside looking in. Is there only hope for an NCAA tournament appearance through the Big East tournament, or can they get things done in the regular season, maybe pick up a game in that tournament against a good team? I think that they'll have to win a couple games in the Big East tournament. I don't think they have to win at all. Uh, it depends on what they do in the regular season, and it depends, like, which games they win, right? So if Creighton, they can win that game at home, that's a pretty good net and Ken Palm win. Um, like the Marquette thing was a missed opportunity. Like that was a pivotal game on Saturday because if they win that Marquette's a top 20 Ken Palm and net team. And Seton Hall would have gone from like 50 in the Ken Palm, maybe to like 40 or in 40, you know, in the mid forties at the worst. Instead, they, they get punished somehow and they drop to like 62 the next day. In the Ken Palm, that's a huge swing. I mean, it could have been like a 20-point swing in the computer rankings, which could be a difference between making it and not making it. I hate to overstate it, but you're halfway through conference play. You're two-thirds of the way through your season, and that is a pivotal game in my mind. So, you know, if you take care of business the next couple games, um, they could win three in a row again and be three games over 500 in the conference going into the Creighton home game. And let's say you win that one. You're in great shape. You know, you go 500 the rest of the way and you're going, you know, and you and you can because you have Georgetown at home and you have Villanova at home and at Providence, you know, is winnable, is winnable. So, you know, let's say, you you know, you, you lose at UConn, you lose Xavier home, um, maybe you lose at Villanova, whatever. Like you lose, lose three or four of those games somewhere along the way. You could still do it, you know, as long as you don't lose to Georgetown in the first round of the Big East tournament or something. I think they have a chance. All right, so Dave, before I let you go, um, I've got to ask you. So I've been in almost every home game this year. You've done, you've done every game this year, right? I know, I know, Gary missed some time, but you, you were down in Orlando, right? You, you've done almost every game, right? I have only missed two games in twenty years. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> so, what's been your favorite game from this year? 
Oh God. Um, <laughs> and Memphis stands out because it looked like they were dead in the water. And then, you know, Samuel takes the inbound pass, throws up a panicky shot, banks it in and they win and they dog pile them on the court. And, and that was like their first good win. It was their quad one win that they could hang their hat on and, you know, kind of saves the trip for them down there. Um, Rutgers was great. Anytime you can win at Rutgers, you know, particularly the way they've played since beating Purdue, like the win gains more momentum as, as you move on through the season, because they've been pretty good. Um, and then UConn was so great. So, I mean, to me, you know, I, I was on the play-by-play for Memphis and that was really exciting. Um, there weren't a lot of Seton Hall people there. Um, so it, you know, it was a little weird, you know, you're kind of doing it in a bubble, but um I mean, the UConn game was the most important win, and the place was lit. I mean, that that was among the best crowds, you know, at least in the second half that we've had at the Rock. I mean, there have been some really crazy games there, um, Villanova and Rutgers, and I remember a Creighton game when Kadeen Carrington scored like 41 points, and, and they came back and won, and the place was really loud. But, you know, the place on some of those dunks, like from Odie Cali and uh, Nadefo, and Adef was put back in the second half. The place really uh, was loud, and it was a great moment for the program. So UConn was the most important win, but Memphis was also really fun. That was Memphis was your favorite, though. Yeah, okay, I get that. And and I was talking to some of my buddies who were were working the game with us, and we were at the UConn game, and and they're they're older. They've 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 been here a little longer. So I said, you know, is this UConn game the best experience you've ha- had at the Rock? Because remember, last year you had Texas, and I'm sure there are a few more games like uh, that that there were. Uh, before last year, but we seem to agree that UConn was that game for us this year. So I'm uh, I'm glad I was able to experience it. And Dave, I thank you for coming on. Um, thank you for being very grateful at your time. I look forward to seeing you around the rock uh, for the rest of the year. Always a pleasure. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Dave. When we get back, the Jets need a new offensive coordinator. We'll go over some names when we return. Now we're back from break again. Once again, thank you, Dave, for taking time out of your day. I know you're very busy guy with basketball season and all the other sports you call. So thank you for taking time out of your day to talk some Seton Hall hoops. It's been a, been a fun year for the Pirates. It's been fun going to the games and uh and helping out and everything. And it's a, it's a fun, exciting team this year. But we'll shift gears to the other things going on in town. We can put a bow on the New York Jets season as well. And I also want to touch a little bit on the Brooklyn Nets towards the back end. Not too much time here, but... um. The Jets are still searching for an offensive coordinator, in that case also a quarterback, and it's got me thinking maybe these two things correlate. Now, you go down the list of possible coordinators after they fired LaFleur. Greg Roman in Baltimore, a Lamar Jackson connection. Nathaniel Hackett, former Green Bay Packers OC, maybe an Aaron Rodgers connection. Byron Leftwich, if you want to go this far, maybe a Tom Brady connection. It's not guaranteed, but there are some interest, and of course, Rob Sala, the head coach with Jimmy Garoppolo. There are some connections here with these impending quarterbacks that could be hitting the trade market and free agency to keep an eye on. And again, I'm not saying it's 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 a guarantee, but it's definitely interesting to take a look at. And when it comes down to who do you want as your offensive coordinator? These are some good candidates. Uh, Byron Leftwich has a has a championship with the Bucks under um Bruce Arians. Nathaniel Hackett was terrific with Aaron Rodgers with in Green Bay, and of course Greg Roman in in Baltimore for all those years. To me, the candidate that you want to go out and get is Nathaniel Hackett. 
because Aaron Rodgers should be the next Jet quarterback too. And this is all assuming that Lamar Jackson stays. I really do think that Lamar is staying. I don't think he's going anywhere. He's involved with the offensive coordinator search down in Baltimore. So I truly think Lamar is going to stay. But obviously, if he hits free agency, he is the um, number one option for you. Aaron Rodgers should be on the Jets. Um, he should be number one on their priority list. It's going to take two first-round picks to go out and get him. And in two years, or, or dare I say two years, it could be could be one depending on what happens, um, you're going to have to go out and look for a new quarterback also. But you look at this Jet team right now, they are a team that's ready to win next year. The emergence of Garrett Wilson, a healthy Brees Hall, hopefully a stud lineman they can find in, in either in free agency or in the draft, a, a, a very good defense that came out this year, hopefully a head coach. I guess the jury's still out, but it seems to no, he knows what he's doing. Aaron Rodgers makes the most sense if you are a win-now team. And if you're looking for a championship in your first or second year, Aaron Rodgers is your guy. And you know me in my mind being the guy that wants championships, of course, go after him. If you want a few more chances to win, if you want three or four, Derek Carr is probably a guy. Taking on a lot of money for a guy who maybe passes prime, may not be, maybe with a good coach and a good team around him, some more weapons. He's a great option. Some of the other ones that would be Garoppolo, of course, the connection with Sala and San Francisco always hurt, though. So you really can't, at least to me, I don't trust him, and I, I wouldn't bring him on. And then Tom Brady, that's an interesting one. <laughs> no, <laughs> straight out, no. If on the Jets, I wouldn't touch him with a 50-foot pole. It looks like his uh, his best days are behind them, and you know what? After all those years years in New England, it'd be kind of weird for him to play for the New York team, especially the Jets. So he, I would not bring Brady. To me, the guy is Aaron Rodgers, and if you bring in Nathaniel Hackett, who had some great seasons with him up in Green Bay, makes a ton of sense. It really does. And like I said, this team is ready to win. You put Aaron Rodgers with Garrett Wilson. And Braxton Berrios and Brees Hall, and hope, like I said, hopefully a better offensive line. You can bring out those days that Aaron Rodgers had in Green Bay with Devontae Adams, and Aaron Jones when he was helping out, and a very good offensive line that Green Bay had. It's a strong possibility, and to me, that's number one on the Jets' wish list. It should be at least. And real quick, we'll wrap it up with the Brooklyn Nets, who are learning to survive. Without Kevin Durant. And we did hear some good news today. That he should be back before the All-Star break. And please do not let him play in that game. If anybody in the Nets organization had any brains. They would tell him you're sitting out of this game. After an MCL injury in two straight years. And this team failing in the playoffs. The last three years. Do not let Kevin Durant play in the All-Star game. Be a colossal mistake. Because knowing this guy, he'll go up with a jump shot and come down with an ACL tear and the next season is over and they'll be wishing for trades in the offseason. Do not let him play in the All-Star game. And he's talking about playing. Do not play in it. God knows his team doesn't need it. But on a positive note, Jock Vaughn has done a phenomenal job mixing and matching without KD. Number one is the emergence of Nick Claxton, which has been a whole season thing. But since Durant has left, this guy has turned into a monster. Go back and watch that Golden State game. Nick Claxton shoots. He can grab boards. He even hits some clutch free throws. He was doing it all. Nick Claxton is 
and I I told I said they should have traded him last year along with Harden. I am so happy to be wrong. And more times than not, I am wrong. And I'm perfectly okay with being wrong in this situation. I love Nick Claxton. And number two, Kyrie Irving, of course, doing a great job being the first option. I didn't really think he had any issue with it, but he's embracing it. Of course, he loves it. He loves getting the ball. The team obviously isn't 100% without Kevin Durant. No one expected it to be. But they're getting by, and they're playing 500 basketball. That's all you got to do. Especially this Eastern Conference that's very tight, except for Boston up top, who lost the big game to Miami tonight. I was watching that. It's gonna take. It's only gonna be a few games difference between two and five, maybe even six. So staying afloat, super super important if you're the Brooklyn Nets. We've approached that time of year. There's no more local football. Of course, we have conference championship weekend. Of course, Super Bowl. But it's hockey and basketball up until pitchers and catchers, which is just under 30 days. So, and of course, March Madness, too. We had this, the college basketball stuff today. So, March Madness around the corner, too. Georgetown Hoyas broke their curse today on their first conference game in almost two years. We're getting into a very good time of year sports-wise, and I can't wait to get on here and talk about it. So, for now, I'm Joe Morales. You can get me on Twitter at Joe Morales underscore this has been underscore one, by the way. This has been the MDM podcast.